let us go ahead and go into the teaching for this morning. We're going through a series on the life of David, and so if you would open your Bible with me to 1 Samuel chapter 24. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's all right, because we'll have the text on the screens next to me, so you'll be able to follow along there. Nobody will be left behind. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 24 today. We're taking... Uh, we're taking our time going through this series on the life of David. It's one that we started last year. Uh, we, we took a break to then do a couple of other shorter series, and then we're back in it, uh, just slowly working our way through. And uh, we're going we're gonna to keep working through this series on the life of David uh, for the foreseeable future. I don't have a, a, a hard deadline in mind, but we're just going to keep working our way through. And we need to take a break for Christmas, then we'll do that, and then we'll jump back into it, and so on. Um, so this morning, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 24. 1 Samuel 24, we're in the section of David's life where he's running in the wilderness as an outlaw because Saul, the king, the tyrant, is trying to take his life. And as David is running for his life, that's where we find him here in 1 Samuel 24. All right, let's go ahead and jump in. In 1 Samuel 24, in verse 1, it says, when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the wilderness near En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 of Israel's fit young men and went to look for David and his men uh, in front of the rocks on, uh, in front of the rocks with the wild goats. When Saul came to the sheep pens along the road, a cave was there, and he went in to relieve himself. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. So they said to him, Look, this is the day the Lord told you about. I will hand your enemy over to you so you can do to him whatever you desire. Then David got up and secretly cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, I swear before the Lord, I would never do such a thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. I will never lift my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. With these words, David persuaded his men, and he did not let them rise up against Saul. Then Saul left the cave and went on his way. After that, David got up and went out of the cave and called to Saul, My lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David knelt low with his face to the ground and paid homage. David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of the people who say, Look, David intends to harm you? You can see with your own eyes that the Lord handed you over to me today in the cave. Someone advised me to kill you, but I took pity on you and said, I won't lift my hand against my Lord since he is the Lord's anointed. Look, my father, look at the corner of your robe in my hand, for I cut it off, but I didn't kill you. Recognize that I've committed no crime or rebellion. I haven't sinned against you, even though you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord take vengeance on you for me. But my hand will never be against you. As the old proverb says, wickedness comes from wicked people. My hand will never be against you. Who has the king of Israel come after? What are you chasing after? A dead dog? A single flea? May the Lord judge and decide between me and you. May he take notice and plead my case and deliver me from you. When David finished saying these things to him, Saul replied, Is that your voice, David, my son? Then Saul wept aloud and said to David, You are more righteous than I, 
For you have done what is good to me, though I have done what is evil to you. You yourself have told me today what good you did for me when the Lord handed me over to you. You didn't kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him go unharmed? May the Lord repay you with good for what you have done for me today. Now I know for certain you will be king, and the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. Therefore swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David swore to Saul. Then Saul went back home, and David and his men went up to the stronghold. Have you ever had something promised to you or something that you felt was right there in your grasp, but you had to wait for it? That can be difficult, right? To know that you have something good coming to you right there on the horizon. Maybe it's a promotion. Maybe it's some time off. Or maybe it's just, it's a next step in life that uh, even if it hasn't been explicitly promised to you, 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 you think, you know, you've got a good feeling that it's right there around the edge of the corner, but not yet, right? That's a really difficult place to live in, isn't it? Uh, it, it's almost, it, it almost becomes more difficult than, than before whenever you didn't know that that good thing was promised to you, right? <laughs> you were just ignorantly, blissfully going on your way. But then now that you know, all of a sudden there's this anxiety, there's this, there's this readiness, there's this eagerness to receive that thing that you've been promised, right? Or that, that, you, that you're hoping for. And so whenever you wait and you're feeling the tension of that waiting, there's all these temptations that start to come up, Right? Maybe some of those temptations can be uh, something such as like giving into the stress, the anxiety of, of waiting between the promise and the receiving of the promise, right? Maybe sometimes it can be uh, then a little bit of bitterness as you begin to wait and you begin, you get frustrated, you're, you become impatient. On the other hand, there's times where you can be tempted to start to take matters into your own hands, right? To maybe take some shortcuts, if there's something that, you, that you're hoping for, that you're looking towards, whether it be something in your career, whether it be something in your personal life, whatever, and you think, ah, if I just took this shortcut, right, then maybe I could get it to me faster. Or maybe if I, I, you start playing this, uh, this game in your head where you think to yourself, if I just start pulling the right strings and, and laying some pressure on the right connections, then maybe I can make these things come out and, and work quicker on my behalf. But in other words, whenever you wait, it can be difficult, and there's all kinds of temptations that come along with the waiting to take shortcuts, pull strings, or do whatever else. And whenever we look at David as he is in this wilderness season of his life, he's living as an outlaw, though he was once a general in Saul's army. He was the most favorite of all generals. Now he is an outlaw running in the wilderness from his former boss, right? From his, his, uh, his former father-in-law, even, who is now trying to kill him. You can imagine all of the temptations. You can imagine all of the thoughts, the pressures, the things internally that David was dealing with as he was living in that intermediary between the promise, which is that he was going to be king, that the king would be his, and the receiving of it, which was finally becoming king, right? Not having to run for his life, but, sit, but instead sitting uh, on the throne in power. And in this passage here, whenever Saul comes into the cave and his life is in David's hands for a moment, we see an incredible temptation for David to go ahead and take what had been promised to him. It's a really, really interesting little story here. It's one that I'll be honest, I never quite understood until this week whenever I got to, to read it and study it deeper. Um, and there's 
There's a lot of profound lessons we can learn from this chapter here. I'm going to try to narrow it down so that we can just learn uh, one main thing for today, which is what do we do whenever we are desiring and waiting for justice? What do we do whenever we are desiring and waiting for what has been promised or what we or the justice that we desire? So we're going to look at three things, desiring justice, waiting for justice, and then receiving justice. Because that's essentially what, what is happening here. David uh, has this promise that has been uh, put over his life that was given through the prophet Samuel that he would be king. So he has this promise, but then on top of the, that promise that he is waiting for, he has also been experiencing uh, some extreme injustices. As he, though he was an innocent man, though there was no reason for Saul to try to take his life, David was not trying to start a military coup to dethrone Saul and then take his place on the throne. It was purely and only by Saul's own uh, insecure paranoia, right, and him being a tyrant that he decided to go after David's life. And so that right there is an injustice. The fact that everywhere he goes, uh, as he is wandering through the wilderness, there are apparently people from Israel who find out that David is in their region and then go try to hand him over to Saul, though he receives that injustice and so on, right? This is what he is going through. He's going through this time where he's not just waiting to receive the promise that was given to him, but a time where he also desires justice, right? Because what he is going through is wrong. And so here we have this moment where they are, they are in the wilderness. There's, this, there's these rocks uh, so it's, it's a hill or a mountain of some kind, and there are caves in it, and caves that apparently go pretty deeply because David and his men, it, it, the text says, are hiding in the recesses of the cave. So, so way back in the cave, that's, that's where they have set up camp, and they are hiding. Remember, David has a few hundred men with him by this point. I can't, well, three, four hundred men. So there's some pretty deep caves that they're in. There they are hiding, and they hear somebody coming in. They don't know it at first, right, that, that Saul and his men are coming to find them. They hear somebody coming into the cave, so they send out a scout to look, and lo and behold, can you believe it? It is the king. It is Saul who has been pursuing them. He's got 3,000 warriors with him trying to come and slay all of them, and there he is right there in their cave. In some translations, uh, if you're using a different one from this one, particularly if you're using an older translation, it might have said something like, Saul went in the cave to cover his feet, right? This was a euphemism during their time for going to use the bathroom, right? And, and as, as it says in our text here, he goes to relieve himself. It doesn't mean relieve himself in terms of a nap. He is going to defecate. That's what's happening here, okay? And so not only is he in, in, alone in the cave, he is also in an extremely vulnerable position. He's in, he is in an extremely vulnerable position where to be assassinated in that position would have been incredibly shameful, right? An awful way to end, though we, we can say a deserving way to end for him because he was, he was wicked. He was terrible. He was a tyrant. And so, so whenever David's men see this, they're like, this is it. This is the moment we've been waiting for. Obviously, all the signs are pointing to us going and finishing this, right? It's obvious to our, to our eyes. So David goes and he, and he doesn't take Saul's life, but instead he just cuts off the corner of his, of his robe. That would be his kingly robe, right? Not just any robe. Uh, it is the one worn by the king. He goes and he just cuts off the corner of his robe and he, he goes back to his men. And then here's where it, it gets odd. Here's the thing that always didn't make sense to me. 
And then it seems as though he has this, this change of heart. It says that he becomes, uh, he, he's remorseful. He starts to feel extremely convicted about what he had done. Why? Well, here's why. Because whenever he went, and though he didn't, he did, he did not, in, from in our eyes, right? He did not harm Saul at all. He did not touch a hair on his head. Saul was absolutely fine, had no idea that David was even there, right? But, but then David goes back, and he is extremely remorseful. He is repentant. He feels awful over what he has done. Here's why. Because that robe that he tore a corner off of, like I said, it was not just any robe, right? It was not just the robe that you go down and buy from the Brooks Brothers of Israel that anybody you know, who was in the military or had enough means and wealth could buy. This was the king's robe. And so being the king's robe, the robe itself carried symbolic significance. It's similar to how any, any symbols that we have today carry uh, significance beyond just what they them are they are themselves right so we have we have our our country's flag we have the the American flag right now it's just fabric and ink right it's just fabric and ink however if you were to go and tear it deface it in some kind of way we see that is as extremely dishonorable or we see it as not just an attack on a piece of fabric right because it's a symbol for something more than what it itself is, and so we see it as an attack on, on a nation, or we see it as an attack on a people. We see it as an attack on uh, maybe an ideals or, or, or principles, whatever else. Think, you know, think one day into the future, and uh, so, so think uh, 10, 15 years down the road, President Cardi B beat Kim Kardashian for the national election. Kim Kardashian, in a very, you know, extreme, enraged that she lost to President Cardi B, goes and uh, she throws pig's blood on a picture of the presidential seal, right? What is she doing? She's not just attacking, uh, once again, an image, but she is attacking an office in the person who resides in that office. This is what symbols do. And so the robe was not just a robe, but it was the symbol of the kingship. It was a symbol of the throne. So what, here's what David realizes. He realizes that in that moment, though he did not shed one drop of Saul's blood, he had still made a symbolic attack against Saul. And Saul, despite how unworthy he was, was still the Lord's anointed king at that time. Because David recognized that this was not God handing the kingdom over to him. Because here's what David recognized, that taking a shortcut to the promise or taking a shortcut to the justice that he deserved was not God's way. Here's the first lesson that we need to learn from, and from what David realized, that justice, justice and that is according to God's definition, must also be pursued according to God's plan. Justice, according to God's definition, must also be pursued according to God's plan. This is what we see in David, right? In, in all of our estimations, and whenever we read it, and whenever his men saw, read the situation, it seemed as though it was obvious, right? This is the way to do it. But David realized that trying to achieve what was on paper the right means with the wrong ends which, was, which would have been a disgraceful assassination of the Lord's anointed, would have been to pervert the goal that he was after all along. That's what he realized here. 
that to pursue justice according to a means that was not God's was wrong. What we learn here through David and his conscience bothering him over even the symbolic action that he had taken was that God not only cares about the ends, he not only cares about the goal, but he cares about the means that we try to take to get there. So often today, and if we take a, a, a secular view of justice, then what people will say and assume is that the ends justify the means. As though if we can achieve a good goal at the end, then it doesn't matter what methods we use to get to that goal because we get to that goal, it's a good thing. But in a Christian analysis, in a biblical analysis, this is not true. God not only cares about the ends, but he also cares about the means. What this shows us is that when we pursue justice in unjust ways, we pervert justice. And so, what does this mean for our, for our lives then? It means this. It means follow God's plan. Whenever there is something set before you, whether that be a promised goal that you're pursuing after, or whether it be a a justice that you are desiring. Sometimes it can be a a justice that you desire just in interpersonal relationships, right? Maybe you don't have a tyrant chasing after you, but you have a wannabe tyrant in your life, right? Someone who, who wants that kind of power, and they have been sinning against you in some way, whether that be a coworker, whether it be a family member, whether it be a neighbor or whoever else, and you desire justice in that relationship, right? So whether it be in interpersonal relationships, whether it be something that you just witness on, on, on a national scale or something that we see and you desire justice in that sense, it is good that we desire justice whenever that is what is due to us, right? Or whenever we witness that that is what do, is due to the world or to the victims of some atrocity, right? But even in our desiring, we must follow God's plan for achieving it. I, whenever I think about this, I always think back to I think what I believe is one of the, the greatest examples of someone who, who did not believe that the means justify the ends and someone who uh, pursued justice according to, in, in a Christian way. And that would be uh, Martin Luther King. Back in the mid-century, during the civil rights struggle for black Americans, there were two broad streams or strategies that were at work in the, in the broader civil rights movement, right? So there was the movement, there was the stream of the movement that was largely led by King, Martin Luther King Jr., who was a, who was a reverend, who was seminary trained, who was a theologian. So he was one great leader in the movement. And I'm, I'm kind of oversimplifying things here, but just for the sake of the time we have. So he was one broad leader in the movement. And then the other one who would be the most prominent leader would have been Malcolm X, right? Many of us have heard of Malcolm X, but we're not quite as familiar with him. But there were these two major leaders, and each one of them kind of represented, though they worked together at, at times and as best they could, they really represented two different mindsets and two different methods of how the justice that they desired, right, which was, which was equal treatment and the removal of all of the, the horrible uh, uh, policies, right, and things that were in place at the time, they had two very different methods of how they thought that it should be pursued. King, being uh, a theologian, being trained in the scriptures, believed that they were to pursue justice according to God's definition of justice, and that it mattered in how they tried to achieve their ends, that the means that they took 
were actually important and that they could not try to go and achieve justice through unjust means, by using violence, right? By using force, by using aggression. Those were all the things that were being used against them that they were trying to gain freedom from. He recognized if we use those same tools and methods, we're no better. But then you had Malcolm X, uh, who was a leader in the nation of Islam, who, who said, no, they are using force against us. It is only right for us to respond in kind, right? So you had these two major methods that were uh, always in tension and brushing up against one another. And Martin Luther King preached a sermon called Loving Your Enemies, and I think that it really, that the, it, it is one of the best sermons you could ever read. You can go find it online. And he says this, and I think it encapsulates uh, his thought, and I think something that's very relevant to what it means for us to pursue justice according to God's uh, plan for justice. He said this in the sermon. He said, I think the first reason that we should love our enemies is this, that hate for hate only intensifies the existence of hate and evil in the universe. If I hit you, and you hit me, and I hit you back, and you hit me back, and go on, you see, that goes on ad infinitum. That means it goes on forever. It just never ends. Somewhere, somebody must have a little sense, and that's the strong person. The strong person is the person who can cut off the chain of hate, the chain of evil. And that is the tragedy of hate, that it doesn't cut it off. It only intensifies the existence of hate and evil in the universe. Somebody must have religion enough and morality enough to cut it off and inject within the very structure of the universe that strong and powerful element of love. Once again, if the oppressed use the tools of their oppressors in order to gain justice, how are they any better than them? And if the oppressed use the tools of their oppressors in order to gain power, well, then how can we expect that they will rule in an any more just way than their former oppressors? You see, what this means for us as we, because justice is a, is a hot topic in our society right now, and it's, it's something that, that is being debated, discussed, and people are trying to figure out well, what, is it, what does it even mean, how we pursue it. For Christians, whenever we desire to pursue justice, whether it be in our society, where we desire to see justice in societies around the world, what this means for us is that we must pursue justice according to God's plan. If we start to accept the methods of the world, if we start to uh, embrace those shortcuts and those wisdom and those things which are those, the, the plans which are propped up, which are the wisdom of men and not the wisdom of God, then we pervert justice itself. In interpersonal relationships. This means the, uh, the, very, the very same thing, but just once again, in, in interpersonal relationship, it means that we should treat everyone according to the way that God uh, tells us that we ought to treat people and not according to what they deserve. So whenever you desire in justice or something that is due to you in relationships, choose the path like King talked about there, where you do not uh, choose to just return hate for hate or backstabbing for backstabbing. Right or lying for lying, aggression for aggression, because that creates a cycle that just continues on. And as he said, the thing about hate is that it can never break the chain. Right. So instead, follow God's plan, which is the plan of love. That is what King was preaching on here, where Jesus taught us to love our enemies. Right. This was David's chosen path, was the path of love and the one not of vengeance. Because for David to even jump out as Saul was leaving, 
and to confront him with that corner of his robe in his hand was an act of love on David's part. David, because of his love for King Saul, despite all that Saul was doing to him, did not allow him to remain in the cave, but it forced him to get up and move, to overcome the fear that would come with exposing himself, right? To overcome the fear to go and reconcile with Saul. And that's what he does where he goes with the robe in his hand and falls down before him. He chooses the way of love and not the way of vengeance. He chooses the tools of God and not the tools of the world, the methods of God and not the method, methods of men. This was David's chosen path. And this is where we, we, we start to see the le- lessons for us and what it means whenever we are waiting for justice. David did not take Saul's life into his own hands in that moment. And I think if you put yourself in his shoes, it's a little mind-boggling that he didn't, right? I think any one of us put, put into David's shoes, one, just like his men, would have seen it as a no-brainer. We would have read that situation and immediately have jumped to the same conclusion as, as his men, like, this is God putting Saul into our hands. But David didn't. And so I want to ask the question, what enabled David to not take Saul's life? The answer is in verses 12. In 12 and 13, listen to what David says whenever he had gone and confronted Saul. He said, May the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord take vengeance on you for me, but my hand will never be against you. Once again, he quotes this old proverb, and he says, My hand will never be against you. So what is it that enabled him to say that, that my hand will never be against you? It was this. He said, May the Lord judge between us, and may the Lord take vengeance. May the Lord be the one to bring the justice that only he can bring and to bring the promise that he has given me uh, in his own timing and according to his own means. The reason that he was able to, the reason that he... Uh, was able to refuse taking justice into his own hands is because his trust was in God. That the same God who had given him the promise and that the same God who is the God of justice, right, would be the God who would be faithful to deliver on his promise. And that God of justice would be the, the same God who would be faithful to execute justice in his own means, by his own means and in his own timing. What this means for us is that refusing to take justice into our own hands or refusing to employ ungodly means, refusing to accept the wisdom of what men say and the methods of men, what this means for us is that it is not giving up on justice. Rather, what we should do is make our appeal to the ultimate court. And so, here's the second major point. When we wait for justice, we do so trusting in God and not in men or the world's shifting opinions. When we wait for justice, we do so trusting in God and not in men or the world's shifting opinions. Once again, look at David and ask a couple of questions. Where does David's trust lie and where doesn't it? Where does David's trust lie? We already saw that it lies in God. His faith is in God. You see, in this moment, what David is doing is he is appealing to the ultimate court. He is saying that, that there is a judge and there's a king who stands in authority over Saul. In Israel, Saul was the ultimate authority. In Israel, Saul was the supreme court, right? He had all power. But here's what David recognizes, that there's a power over him. 
And there is a court that is higher than him, which even Saul himself will one day have to give an answer to. And it is to that ultimate court that he appeals. That's where his faith lies. Where does it not lie? It doesn't lie in Saul. He's not, he does not go and confront Saul in the hopes that, that with the sweetest of words, right, and with, with the right persuasion, he will be able to change Saul's heart. It's not that he sees a diamond in the rough, right? And he just, it's not that he wants to go out there and just boost Saul's, self, Saul's self-esteem because if Saul could just have a little bit more security, then all this would go away with. He's not, just, he's not trusting in, in a, a change of heart from Saul. That's not where it lies. His trust lies in the Lord. Also notice that his trust does not lie in the people of Israel. This is not an attempt to gain their favor, to gain their approval, or anything else like that. Once again, his trust is not in Saul. It is not in the people of Israel or the world's shifting opinions. His trust is in God. So what does this mean for us? Once again, as we, as we live in a time where we desire justice, but we very often must wait to see it uh, executed, or we, where we must wait to see it satisfied. What do we do in that time of waiting? Well, as I said before, we follow God's plan. We do not deviate it as we wait. And then secondly, we appeal to the ultimate court. So continue to follow God's plan as we wait and as we work and then appeal to the ultimate court. Like I said before, appealing to the ultimate court doesn't mean that we are giving up on justice. It doesn't mean that we are just relinquishing the hope or that we're saying that those who are suffering should continue to suffer. In whatever uh, righteous means that are at our disposal, we work, right? We do not give in to unrighteous means. That's following God's plan. And then we continue to make an appeal to the ultimate court. We recognize that, yes, there are presidents. Yes, there are kings. Yes, there are prime ministers and, and, and whoever else. Yes, there are supreme courts and there are legislators. But there is an ultimate court which stands above them all. The greatest and most powerful tyrants in all of the world are nothing, are puny in comparison to the king who rules and reigns over them in heaven. The most powerful and the wisest of all courts, staffed by the greatest philosopher kings that our society can raise up, are nothing compared to the wisdom and the authority of the ultimate court of the Lord, which even they will one day have to submit to. Friends, as we desire justice, Whenever you see things in our own country that you say, that's not right. Whenever you see things around the world and you say to yourself, that's not right. right? It, it shouldn't be this way. What I'm saying is this. Refuse and resist to give into a revolutionary spirit. Refuse to give into the revolutionary spirit that says, well, let's just use whatever means possible. This is a war, right? So let's just go for it because it's war. Right? Or, or they're using the, these, these tools of aggression, of force, and so will we. They're using tools of manipulation and propaganda, so so will we. Right? Or, or these people's answers seem to be good, let's accept theirs. Refuse to give in to the revolutionary spirit. Christianity is not a revolutionary religion. It is a reformational religion. Christianity works by transforming the hearts and minds of men and women, and then of families, of churches, and then societies. 
refused to give in to the, and embrace the revolutionary spirit that would seek to employ worldly means to pursue shifting definitions and opinions of justice. We continue to work. We don't give up. However, we also must recognize this. There are many injustices that will never be reckoned with in a human court. There are many injustices that will never be reckoned with in a human court. That is a sad reality of the fallen state of our world that we have to recognize. There, there are things that happen to people, even here in our city, right, that happen to, to people that will, the person will never come to justice in a human court. We see things happening on a global scale that we must recognize that, that though God still might move, right, it's likely that unless he moves and intervenes in history, those people will not find justice in a human court, right? Who will hold responsible the Chinese government for their, their, their oppression of their own people and the, constant, and, and the enslavement and throwing into concentration camp of the Uyghur Muslims? Most likely, no Chinese court will. Most likely, no other human court will, right? Who will hold responsible uh, the, the tyrant in, in North Korea? Who will hold responsible the, uh, the Islamist extremists who abuse and, um, and, and, and destroy right, men, women, and children in their own communities? Right? Who will hold them accountable? Even in our own country, whenever we see, as it was just reported this past week, that our own government in a drone strike killed Afghani civilians, even a child as young as two years old, will anyone be held responsible? If, you put, if, you, if your faith is in human courts, and human pursuits of justice, you will be disappointed. Who will hold the people responsible for these atrocities? Don't put your faith in Biden. Don't put your faith in Trump. Don't put your faith in in justice, whoever and whoever else. Instead, very often we must appeal to the ultimate court. We must recognize that, that just like the widow who Jesus talks about in his parable in Luke chapter 18, who was persistent in going to a judge, appealing for justice and appealing for justice. Jesus said to us, he said, so also, whenever we go to God our Father and appeal for justice, won't he hear us? Appeal to the ultimate court. There's this wonderful moment in this text, in, in this story here. After David goes before Saul and he says, Saul, your life was in my hands, but instead, look, all I took was a robe. All the corner, it's only the corner of your robe that's in my hands, not, not your neck, right? He goes before him, and this scene, even for Saul the tyrant, must have been so shocking to him that even for a brief moment, because Saul's going to go right back to his murderous ways later, okay? But for a brief moment, it even shakes and changes Saul. He, it, it makes him come to his senses even for a moment here. And there is this incredible admission on his, his part, which I think would be easy for us to pass over if we don't pause and recognize it. In verse 20, listen to what he says. He says, now I know for certain you will be king and the kingdom of Israel will be, will be established in your hand. That is an incredible admission on Saul's part. What is he doing here? What is he recognizing? He is recognizing this. It's incredible. He, he, he is saying that, uh, he is finally saying that he submits to God's word. 
I think there's something incredible here that is important for us to state, especially in the context of everything that we've talked about today with the, the, the tyrants that, we've, that we see today and the injustices that we witness today, which is this. Even God's enemies will have to recognize God's reign one day. Even God's enemies will one day say, now I know for certain that God reigns. Which leads us to our third and final point. The Lord will one day rule and reign over the earth. Saul finally recognizes David is one day going to reign. The kingdom will one day be in your hand, right? As David stands there with the symbolic, with it, with a symbol of the kingdom in his hand, Saul finally recognizes that the kingdom will one be his. And what that means for us, we should recognize that, that the world will one day finally and ultimately belong to Christ. He will rule and reign over the earth. And whenever he does, he will judge sin and he will execute justice. But here's the issue. Whenever the holy and righteous Lord comes and he rules and reigns over the earth and he judges sin and he executes justice, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us if we are sinners? What does that mean for us if we have not just been victims of injustice, but we have also been perpetrators, right? We have not just been the people who have been backstabbed and lied about and gossiped about, right? But we have been the backstabbers, the liars, and the gossipers ourselves, that for any interpersonal conflicts we have faced, we have equally been the cause of them, right? That we have rebelled, that we have worshiped false idols and other gods, that we have placed our hope in supreme courts and other kingdoms rather than the ultimate court and God's kingdom. If he was, is going to come and execute his justice, what does that mean for us who are lawbreakers and deserve to be uh, placed beneath the sword of his wrath? Is there any hope for us then? So in other words, for we who desire justice but should also be the recipients of it, What's the solution? Here's the thing. We can be spared, and we will be spared if you belong to Christ because Jesus passed the test in the wilderness. You see, David was in the wilderness, and he had a test placed before him in this, in this passage where the kingdom was, in a, in, just for a moment, placed within the grasp of his fingertips. The kingdom that was promised to him, that, that was going to be his, that should have been his. Here he is in the wilderness, and there's a test that is placed right there at his fingertips. Jesus went through a very similar test. Whenever you go and you read in the New Testament, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus has been fasting in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. It says then that the, that the devil comes to tempt him as he is in this state of fasting and of weakness and suffering. And he comes and he gives him three different tests in the wilderness. And do you remember what the second test was? In the second test the devil had, uh, gave Jesus, he did this. It says in Luke chapter 4, verse 5, So he took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. The devil said to him, I will give you their splendor and all this, this authority because it has been given over to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. If you then will worship me, all will be yours. Now pause right there. Here's the thing to understand. In Psalm chapter 2, it says that, that the Lord's anointed will one day receive as his reward all the nations of the earth, right? So, so that is Jesus's reward. He is one day going to rule over all the nations of the earth. They will be his. He will be their king. And so here is the devil saying to him, look, here's what is promised to you. This has been promised to you. This is, this is going to be yours one day, 
Why not take it now? Why not, why not take a shortcut? It's here at your fingertips. Just as David had the kingdom that was promised to him laid right at his fingertips where he could have taken a shortcut. But Jesus, the greater David, right? Jesus, the true king, the Messiah and our savior, passed the test in the wilderness. And here's how, because in verse eight, it says, and Jesus answered him, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Because Christ obeyed, in the wilderness, and because Christ chose to worship God the Father only and serve Him only, because He obeyed wherever He went to the cross and He died the, the, the penalty for our sin and He swallowed up God's wrath on our sin in His own death, that obedience that He lived out in the wilderness and that He lived out in His life is, can then be applied to your life. You see, we deserve God's judgment. We deserve God's wrath. We deserve to be punished because we have been disobedient, because we have been unrighteous, right? But because of Jesus' righteousness and because of his obedience and because he did not hold on to it, but he gave it up on the cross, it is now offered to you as a gift. So not only can your sins be forgiven because Christ paid the penalty for them on the cross, but now his obedience, that just like you should have obeyed, can be given to you, right? So it's not just that, imagine you had an incredible debt that you never could have paid off, right? Like your student loans. <laughs> I'm just kidding, but yeah, some of you guys know that's like. You have this incredible debt that you, you, you never could have paid off on your own. And somebody comes, a very wealthy, uh, an incredibly wealthy person with, with riches beyond your imagination comes and they pay your debt. That debt is now no longer yours, but you're still poor as dirt, right? You still have uh, $30 in your checking account or, or maybe less. But then more than that, that incredibly wealthy person who pays your debt then gives their, all, all of their, uh, their assets, they give all their cash, their stock, and their properties, and they place it in your name. So now you went not just from being in an incredible, uh, sweltering amount of debt that you never could have paid off to going to having that debt paid, but you are now incredibly wealthy. This is what is offered to you because of Christ's obedience. He pays the debt that you never could have paid, but then because he lived the life that you should have lived and didn't, you are given the wealth of the favor with God that he, uh, that, that he built up through his obedience. That is given to you. So that whenever you hurt because you have been hurt or whenever you hurt because you see people have been hurt and you go before the Lord and you plead for his justice and you appeal to the ultimate court, he does not look down and see someone that he pities, but he looks down and he sees someone that he rejoices in. Otherwise, how can we have any hope that he would hear us? But because you are clothed in the royal robes of Jesus Christ and his incredible wealth of righteousness that you never could have built up is in your account. And because his status as God's child has been given to you and you have been adopted into his family, whenever we come to the Lord, he hears us. He is eager and willing to hear you. And he rejoices in listening to your prayers and answering them. Those answers might not always come according to our timeline, right? Let's acknowledge that. It might not always come according to our timeline, but let me tell you this. He always, always answers your prayers. Do not ever believe that he does not. 
there's, you guys have heard me say this before if you've been a redeemer, but one of the all-time most wonderful things I've ever read about prayer was written by John Calvin. And what John Calvin told us was this, is that if you're in Christ, right, if, if Jesus's wealth has been placed into your account and you're clothed in his righteous robes, what John Calvin said is that when we go and we pray to God, his answer is always yes. His answer is always yes. And, and we see this in, uh, it's, it's either First, Second Corinthians, that, that in Jesus, uh, everything is amen. That means it is answered to us. And here's how Calvin could say that. Because number one, we've, we either pray according to God's will because we have received a heart that has been cleansed by the blood of Christ. So we desire what God desires. And so when we go to the Lord and we pray for what he desires, of course, his answer is going to be a yes. On the other hand, the New Testament tells us that whenever we go before the Lord as God's child, the Holy Spirit is helping us. The Holy Spirit prays with us to make up for our weaknesses. And more than that, Jesus, the Christ, the King who who died on our behalf, is now sitting at the right hand of God, and he is interceding on our behalf. You know what that means, interceding? He's acting like an advocate. He's acting like an attorney working on behalf of their client. He is praying for us to the Lord. And so even when we go to God, we pray for those things that we shouldn't. We pray for those things that might not be according to God's plan. We have the Holy Spirit and we have the Son interceding on our behalf, changing those prayers and to be what we should be praying. So that our prayers are always yes. So what does that mean to bring this together? It means, once again, follow God's plan. Don't start to be tempted into, into what the world can, promises us we can do if we follow their plans and accept their methods. Remember the promises of the gospel. Remember the promises of the gospel that we have achieved for us in Jesus Christ, and let that be the assurance that you need to, to continue to follow God's plan, to continue appealing to the court of, of his justice, Right, continue appealing to that ultimate court and not starting to give in to the cynicism, right? The darkness, the pessimism of the world saying, Well, there's no such thing as justice. That's not true. And then finally, fight the righteous fight. There's another admission of Saul in this passage where he says to David, You are certainly more righteous than I. You see, because what David was doing was he was fighting the righteous fight in that moment, though it made no sense to his men and though it makes no sense to us until we start to understand it, right? With the assurance that comes from the gospel, from knowing that all of our prayers are yes and amen in him, in, in, in Christ when we go to God, continue to fight the righteous fight. Our motivation to fight it is not based upon what we, what we can accomplish in our own strength or the results that we might see, but our confidence to fight the fight is based in the work of Jesus Christ accomplished for us. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now and we ask if there are any of us in this room who have not laid our life down before the king of the universe. Lord, who we have not gone before your ultimate court, recognizing that the sentence against us is guilty and that we need an advocate, that we need a substitute, that we need a savior. Lord, if there are any this morning who have not, who have not done this, gone before you, laying their life down to the cross to receive the gift that you offer, to receive the erasing of debt, the forgiveness of sin, and the receiving of the infinite wealth of Christ's righteousness into our account. 
Father, I ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, lead us before the cross, lead us before your throne to experience that salvation today. And then, Lord, as we are saved and welcomed into your kingdom, make us agents of your kingdom who go into this world invading the kingdom of man and, and invading the, the kingdoms of tyrants, and, but spreading your kingdom, spreading your message, and doing so according to the weapons you give us, which are the weapons of love, the weapons of peace, the weapons of righteousness and boldness, and the weapon of the proclamation of the gospel. Lord, in that according to your infinite wisdom and power, might we start to see your kingdom prevail and justice reign as more men and women today come to acknowledge you and fall down in obedience to you. Lord, would you make you today? Would you hold responsible those who ought to be held responsible for the atrocities that we witness around the world and even at home? Lord, we desire and we pray for justice. Make us people who do not start to desire it more than we are willing to trust in you and wait on your plan. Father, we pray these things in your name.